The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. All right, well, thanks for listening today. We have a really important guest. His name's Ed Ring, and he is leading a group that is focused on a ballot initiative to bring more water infrastructure to California. Um, I, I, I want to call this the, the meta issue in California. I know there's a lot of topics that people focus on, and, and I will assure you this, if we do not have water in California, we cannot make progress on any of the other topics that you might be concerned about. It, it is uh, foundational to literally life in our state. Southern California simply would not exist without an elaborate system of plumbing that we have throughout our whole state. And there's a lot of reasons that it's time to reinvest in this infrastructure. We really haven't done that in decades now. And with um, a huge set of uh, challenges we've got coming up, both environmental and otherwise, um, Ed is really the person in the state who I think is one of the leading experts on this whole topic. And he has decided to go the ballot initiative route because of inaction by the legislature. So we've got a great talk about sort of where California has been on water, where we need to go, what this particular ballot initiative would do. Um, I, I, I love this topic. I, I think it's uh, it's something both sides of the political spectrum should care about and all and and certainly anybody in the middle as well. So thanks for listening. We've got Ed Ring talking about more water now. New developments in the Golden State Killer. Things unknown. He raped a 29-year-old housewife. Her husband was tied up nearby and had to listen. Go Inside the Crime Files with Anne Marie Schubert, the district attorney who helped put away the Golden State Killer. Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For over 10 years, IBC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques, all to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications projects in any language or location. Visit us today at ivc.media. Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's great to have you. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So I would love to hear um, a little bit of first, maybe an overview of what the ballot initiative does. I want to get into the weeds and the history around it, but maybe just start with kind of at a high level what your ballot measure would do. Sure. Uh, The centerpiece of this ballot initiative is to allocate 2% of the state's general fund to funding water supply projects. And it uh, related to that, we fund uh, water quality projects, but the the centerpiece is we want to produce 5 million acre feet of additional water through new water projects. They don't have to be funded exclusively by this initiative or even at all through this initiative. Uh, but of course, <laughs> funding is necessary to complete most of them. But the idea is between now and when this sunsets, and it, there no longer is an allocation from the state budget uh, to fund water projects, we need to have another 5 million acre feet of water. So that's sort of the basic summary of what we're trying to do. And uh, 2% of the state budget is not quite $4 billion a year. Uh, and the initiative allows half of that 
to be financed, which would unlock, you know, at current rates uh, in the form of bonds, uh, 30 to $35 billion. So you could start several major water, water projects at once. Great. So I, I want to kind of talk about where we are with water as a state. And this is an issue where I feel like um, sort of knowledge is like surface deep, if you'll excuse the pun, like every, everybody seems to know we have a problem. I think very few people sort of have a, an understanding of the scope and what the, and what the real issues are that are preventing us from getting water where we need it. So could, could you kind of like talk about where we are with water at a high level in California and how that relates to this initiative? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a big question. You, I guess you could start by saying we uh, invested in water infrastructure heavily in the 1950s and 1960s. We didn't do everything right, uh, but what we did right was uh, develop what's now, even today, uh, the most elaborate plumbing system, if you will, of interbasin transfers of large quantities of water anywhere in the world. Uh, we move water from the northern rivers into the Southern California cities. We also move water from the Colorado River into Southern California cities. And the original aqueduct from the Owens Valley, east of the Sierras, uh, the Los Angeles aqueduct moves water into uh, Southern coastal cities. So uh, two things happened with the California Water Project. One, we enabled the, the growth of these great cities, you know, literally near what, nearly 30 million, certainly 25 million people uh, live in those Southern California areas of the Inland Empire, San Diego County, Orange County, Los Angeles County, San Bernardino County, Riverside County. You know, you're looking at 25 million people and they're all using, for the most part, um, imported water. The other thing that happened was it enabled the expansion of agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley, the Southern portion of the Central Valley. So these two things happened uh, 40, 50 years ago, they were substantially complete. And since then, uh, the population of California has doubled and we've gotten very good at conserving water, both in agriculture and uh, with urban users. So we're not really diverting very much more water than we ever did. And uh, that's, that's the good news. But, but the bad news is we're having increasingly severe droughts and, you know, people can argue about whether this is a historical anomaly and it's worse than it's ever been or not. But the data is clear that in the past, California has had droughts that lasted for many decades. I think there's some evidence that there were droughts that lasted a century or more in California's history as a, you know, geologically, meteorologically. So what if that happens again? You don't have to subscribe to climate change theories in order to be very concerned. And now most people agree that there is a climate change challenge. And these kinds of, uh, these kinds of droughts are the reason we can't rely on a water infrastructure that we built and finished 40, 50 years ago. Uh, not only is it inadequate if we have prolonged droughts, but it itself is falling apart. Dams need to be retrofitted. Aqueducts need to be, uh, there's land subsidence that's diminishing the capacity, the carrying capacity of our major aqueducts. All of this is gonna cost billions of dollars to fix. And we also have to take into account if we do have one of these mega droughts in the future, 
uh, we're going to need more than what we've got. So that's where we come up with the 5 million acre foot goal. If we're diverting uh, not quite 40 million acre feet a year of water uh, to uh, feed agriculture and to feed our cities, what if it stops raining for 10 years? You know, what if the whole Southwest dries up? What if we don't have any water from the Colorado River anymore? What if we can't transfer nearly as much water from the Sacramento River uh, down south anymore? What are we going to do? So that 5 million acre feet, that could end up being the bare minimum uh, of additional water capacity necessary just to supply our major cities. It's, a, it's also a situation where we want redundancy. It's not only droughts, but there could be some kind of civil disaster or some kind of uh, something that would impact our aqueduct system or our pumps. What if the Tehachapi pumps, which move a couple of million acre feet of water over the mountains every year into Los Angeles, failed for, for a year and had to be rebuilt? Where would we get that water? So our initiative uh, not only calls for five million acre feet of new water, but it takes an all of the above approach to getting that. And I'd, I'd like to tell you about what these eligible project categories are. Sure, let, let's do that. But but let me unpack a few things. You said some really interesting history here, and, and I think it informs the president in a lot of ways. So, so first of all, if people want sort of the definitive history on this, the book you should read is called Cadillac Desert. I would highly recommend it to, to everybody. It kind of kind of walks through. Um, I think you've got it. You've got it on your shelf there. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, a, it's yeah, it's just it's just an amazing read, uh, both about California politics and and the water issues and the history, um, uh, really about like how Southern California was able to be Southern California because there's there's obviously no cities without water. And then the movie was called uh, is that Chinatown? Is, is that what it was called? The, the movie they did on that with Jack Nicholson. I'm not sure Chinatown is directly related to Cadillac Desert. It's certainly the same topic. Okay, yeah, sort of a rough, rough inspiration on it. Yeah. Um, okay, so so that basically as, as we look back at like modern California history, like, and I think this is really important for everyone to understand, there is no Los Angeles without diverted water from other places. It just it just couldn't exist. We can't people can't live where, where there's no water and they and they get uh what, a couple inches a year, something like that in, in Southern California on their own. Am I overstating that in any way? Well, only a little bit. I mean, when you have, uh, what, 10 million people in Los Angeles County, yeah. there are tremendous aquifers under the Los Angeles Basin. Some of them need to be remediated, but there's all kinds of underground water storage capacity uh, in Los Angeles. And you do have storms that go through there um, in usually at least once a year where there's a lot of runoff that pours right off of the San Bernardino Mountains, and it's only 30 miles from those mountains to the coast, and all of this water is running across the surface of Los Angeles, and they've turned the Los Angeles River and its tributaries into storm culverts, and all that water is immediately flushed out to the ocean so it doesn't cause flooding. Uh, and one of the projects that is eligible here, and, and you know, all of these projects are already in the works. They just need money. Uh, they would be able to divert some of that runoff in Los Angeles into the aquifers and into surface storage and be a lot more self-sufficient in water than they are today. As it is, unless you have something like wastewater recycling, and that would cost about $10 billion for them to do that in Los Angeles County. Uh, you know, they 
flush a million and a half acre feet of wastewater into the ocean every year in Los Angeles County. And that's imported water. That's imported from northern rivers and from the Colorado River. And they, they treat it, they use it one time, and then they discharge it into the ocean. So reusing water in Los Angeles and capturing stormwater runoff in Los Angeles could make them close to self-sufficient in water. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. I, I've, never, I've never thought about it quite in those terms. Um, but, but that's not what happens now. What, what happens now is, um, as you said, they get the, some water from the Colorado. Most of it, I take it from the Northern Sierra. Is that ultimately the, the source of this? The Sacramento River, yes. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, I'm going, I'm going real, real baby steps in, in terms of how people know the state. You see all that beautiful snow in Tahoe every year. It melts in the spring, comes down and fills the aquifers and that gets basically distributed to the rest of the state. And that's what the state runs on by and large. Is that fair? Am I oversimplifying that? That's pretty close. I mean, there is water from the Owens River, which is a river valley east of the Sierras. It gets pretty good runoff. And I, I think they get about a quarter million acre feet from that every year, maybe a little bit more than that sometimes. And the Colorado River uh, provides about one and a half million acre feet to California uh, on average. But the rest, and you're looking at two or three million acre feet, maybe more sometimes, uh, gets transported from north of the Delta, basically, to south of the Delta uh, to feed farms and cities in Southern California. So, yes, we we rely on imported water in Southern California almost exclusively. And that's so so there's this sort of pleasant weather phenomenon that happens is my understanding. But again, I, I want to make sure we're getting this all right for the listeners that we get the snowpack over the winter. It starts to it, generally it sort of slowly melts from the spring. So it's sort of like natural storage in that sense in the form of snow and ice and Tahoe. And, um, and as you start to melt through the spring and even probably well into the summer, I mean, so sometimes Tahoe mountains are open till July, till July 4th, all that is basically turning into the water that gets distributed around the state. Is that right? Yes. A lot of this water is reserved to stay in the rivers as it should be. Uh, and that's sort of a controversial issue. How much water do you leave in the rivers and run through the Delta for the health of the fish and ecosystems? And how much do you divert? Uh, but the another thing we have to confront is the possibility that this snowpack isn't going to be as reliable as it's been in the past. It's like this giant reservoir up on right. the, of the Sierra. And it sits there as it slowly melts, it discharges that water for everyone. But what happens if it isn't as, as much, if there isn't as much that lasts into the summer? What happens if it, most of it runs off as soon as it comes down in the form of snow and rain? How do we capture that water if we're, if we're not going to have that snowpack anymore? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going with that. I mean, we, there's a, some studies the last few weeks at 25 years from now, the snow cap and the snow, uh, snowpack in the West could be eliminated. We're certainly having some really erratic years in both directions recently. We, you know, we're, we're recording this at a time where we're here on December 9th. We had big snow in October. It all melted right, right away. It got warm. We had no snow in November. And now there's about 100 inches in the forecast for next week. So it's, it's kind of hard to predict um, you know, what those patterns are going to be. And I think that's another reason to be alarmed about this. Okay. So you said something really important in, in there, actually, maybe a few times. And I want to make sure people hear this because I think it jars people when they hear it. We actually dump tons of water into the ocean every year, despite 
our needs for it, right? Could you could you expand on that a little bit more? Well, yeah, and there's two contexts to uh, look at that in. One, which I think is not controversial at all, is we're dumping treated wastewater into the ocean. So, you know, if you're moving water into the uh, San Francisco Bay Area through the Hetch Hetchy Aqueduct and through the California Aqueduct, and that water makes its way over the mountains and it gets distributed into the actually into the aquifers in many cases. I mean, I, I don't want to go, go on too much there, but what we're talking about in one case is imported water that's treated. It's used one time, uh, and then it's sent through the sewers to the, to the sewage treatment plant, and it's, it's treated and discharged into the San Francisco Bay or into the Santa Monica Bay. And you're talking about a roughly 3 million acre feet that gets uh, discharged into the ocean of water that was you know, it was very costly to import that water into all of these places. So that is something where we really ought to be building wastewater treatment plants where we can completely reuse that water. And you can't get all of it back. And some of it's used for landscaping, of course, but the water that comes out through, you know, the dishwasher and the, uh, the laundry and the shower and the toilets and, you know, all of that indoor water use, you can get 80 to 90% of that back every single time it goes to the wastewater treatment plant. And that's been proven in Orange County. Orange County, they're almost done uh, with the project that's taken many years, but they're at the point now where they're about to finish a wastewater treatment plant where they'll be up to 100% of their wastewater is gonna be treated. And then they'll get about 80 to 90% of that back. They pump it into the aquifers. It's called indirect potable reuse direct potable reuse, they would pump it right back into the water mains and that's coming. So this sort of, uh, this sort of water going into the ocean is, is just a complete waste and it's expensive to recycle it, but you make the investment in this capital and then over you know, 10, 20 years, you pay the, the investment off. And then the facility with upgrades can last for 50 or 60 years or more. So this is something that you make the investment and then you've got all this water back. We believe that there's 2 million acre feet a year of water that can be recovered from wastewater treatment and used over and over again. The other water that gets discharged into the ocean is water that you just leave in the rivers. And that you can really find yourself in a minefield when you start talking about that because there's differing opinions and, and there are expert opinions. You know, there's a lot of people that have strong opinions about this that may not be fully informed about the, you know, the science and this, but the science itself is debatable as it should be. Uh, but if you wanted to, you know, you, you have to acknowledge, we have to leave some of this water in the rivers. I don't think anybody disagrees about that. It's how much water do we leave in the rivers? And again, you know, to bring this back to the initiative, there's a study, the Public Policy Research Institute, I think they finished it in 2017, that looked at how much of what they called uncaptured water went through the uh, Sacramento Delta in the average year. And they looked at 20 years, uh, I think from 96 through 2016. And they determined that, and I'm quoting, that water that is beyond the, you know, the statutory requirements that they've come up with to protect the ecosystems and the fish uh, during storm events on average is 11 million acre feet a year. So, you know, even that's controversial, but what's, you know, is it 11 million acre feet or is it less than that or more than that? 
but everyone agrees that during major storm events, when we get these atmospheres, there is runoff going through the Sacramento Delta that exceeds anything we need for the health of the ecosystems. And that runoff, we need more infrastructure to capture. And we can do that in off-stream reservoirs that don't disrupt the flow of natural rivers. So it, when we get those big, um, we, we weather nerds, by the way, call these AR events. So if you forget yeah. that acronym, I'll, I'll use that word. <laughs> yeah. we, we, can, we count on those for, for good snowboarding in Tahoe. Um, so when, when we get these big <laughs> ARs, there are times, right, where we're just dumping into the ocean because we simply don't have the capacity to hold that. It right? probably hasn't happened for a couple of years, but I seem to recall a few years ago, the Truckee River was basically about to overflow. And at that point, we just dump it into the ocean, right? Well, sure, it'll follow its natural course and often can cause flooding, uh, which, you know, historically there's the Central Valley has flooded uh, during major storm events. And we've channelized a lot of the river uh, in order to protect cities and farms. Uh, but we also have floodplains uh, that are deliberately set up uh, in Yolo County, uh, sort of in the lower course of the Sacramento River flows into the Delta. There's an enormous floodplain. I don't know how many square miles. I think it's about 100 square miles in size. And when the water is just surging down the Sacramento River during a big storm, they open up the gates and they let some of it go into that floodplain. And that kind of technology, if you want to call it that, is really a great idea. You know, it's consistent with all of the objectives that people can agree on because it not only creates wetlands, uh, but it also lets that water percolate into the aquifers where it can be recovered later for farming and for urban use. So, you know, when you talk about how do we get this flood water, how do we capture it so we can have more of it to, to divert for cities and farms, you can do it in a way that doesn't really, it, it, you know, it's not even close to the idea of an in-stream high dam. You know, it, it, it's not even an off-stream reservoir where you have to, die, you know, you do have to disrupt some valley to build an off-stream reservoir. But, you know, when you create floodplains, then, then you're creating habitat at the same time as you're recharging the aquifers. So there's a lot of good ways and pretty good ways to capture water without having to build high dams anymore. Okay, so that's a really helpful background. And and now I definitely want you to, to get into what types of projects the ballot initiative would fund. In, in the context of, I take it from what you're saying is if we did the things that you're about to talk about, we could protect our future water supply. In other words, we, we get enough water. We're just not keeping enough of the water. Right? You're not talking about ways to actually create new water, are you? Well, the only way you can create new water is with desalination. And desalination is one of the eligible projects for the simple reason uh, we didn't want to take anything off the table. If you look at it realistically, the idea that desalination is going to contribute a significant percentage of that 5 million acre feet is, is ridiculous. Uh, there's one big desalination plant in California. It's the biggest one on the West Coast. It's actually not that big by international standards. It's a pretty good sized plant in Carlsbad in the San Diego County. It, produces 60,000 acre feet of water a year from the ocean. And, you know, when you talk about desalination, you have to bear in mind the energy costs to desalinate water are getting better all the time. They're getting very good at doing it efficiently. 
And if you look at the energy cost of transporting water, you know, every 20 miles or so, you have to pump water in the aqueducts back uphill. So you have six pumping stations on the uh, California aqueduct south of the Delta, and then you have the big pumping station to get the water over the mountains. Uh, that energy requirement is about the same as desalination. So energy shouldn't be a big issue with desalination. The impact environmentally of desalination is something that's the subject of rancorous debate. Uh, you, you know, if and I don't want to make this about desalination, but people ought to remember that desalination is saving, you know, it's saving cities all over the planet. It's the only way some of these cities uh, in Australia, Singapore, Middle East, Easter. can exist. So, it, you know, and the California current, if there's, I mean, when you're talking about massive desalination plants in the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, the, um, the Red Sea, these desalination plants are operating where there's minimal current. So they're, they have a much bigger challenge in terms of dispersing the brine, which is, after all, it's just somewhat more concentrated seawater uh, off the California current. The only current in the world that's greater is the Gulf Stream, which, you know, that's a legendary current. It's what keeps Europe warm. And it's the reason you can inhabit Europe. And it's not an ice age in Europe. Um, I, you know, and I don't want to digress too much on desalination, but to answer your question, there is one way to get water. Uh, and that's an eligible project. Okay. But, but mostly, mostly what you think this would go to fund is saving the water we're already getting and making sure we can use it in constructive ways for the state. Yeah. And there's also brackish water desalination. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of brackish water in California, but you, you got that. And then you have as eligible projects, building reservoirs, building floodplains, building wastewater treatment plants, uh, developing aquifers and aquifer recharge and fixing the aqueducts. And, and if you look at that assortment of, pro oh, and we also have as an eligible project for 1 million of the 5 million acre foot goal, we have uh, funding for conservation programs. So we can get, an, we, you know, there's probably another million acre feet that could be found in agriculture and in urban use. So we didn't want to dismiss that and just make it purely about new water. So you're looking for 5 million acre feet. Roughly speaking, it'd be a million from conservation, a million from runoff and stormwater capture, excuse me, 2 million from that, and 2 million from wastewater recycling. That's how you get to the 5 million acre feet. It's very feasible and it's expensive, which is why we're trying to, we're trying to take the funding challenge away. We're trying to make it so, all right, here we are in an era of budget surpluses. Here we are confronting what could be a mega drought. You know, here we are with, what, how many years since we've really poured money into water projects? Uh, you know, 30, 40 years. So here we are, we are with this opportunity to fix the problem, to build the next generation of water supply infrastructure in California. And... Five million acre feet through these means is is the way to achieve that. Well, that, that's a great segue to talk about the politics. So, um, so why why everything you said just you know makes such good common sense. It's it's hard for me to understand when you hear that why we're not doing these things legislatively already. Although that's what I want to talk about, and I think I have some sense of the politics. So, why why is this not happening? What what is preventing? 
good common sense investments in water infrastructure from happening in Sacramento without the need for ballot initiative? You know, that's that's the big question. And it it is it's mystifying in some ways that there's opposition to this idea because the money is there right now. And the the way that the projects are defined in general terms, instead of going out, you know, the last attempt in 2018, they did a good job, but they went out and found projects and they defined specific projects for funding in exchange for uh, support to get the initiative on the ballot. And that, I mean, that's a very legitimate way to do it, but it took several years and it failed. It narrowly failed, it lost by a hundred thousand votes. I voted for it. You know, it had things in there that I wouldn't have necessarily supported, but uh, overall it was gonna do a lot of good and I voted for it. What we did though, by contrast, because when you define specific projects, you're gonna forget some, or you're gonna identify some that a constituency has a violent opposition to. Whereas we just looked at every category of projects that California needs and says, if that's a, if the project application to the Water Commission fulfills that criteria, then the Water Commission has the authority to fund it. And then the Water Commission makes the final decision, which gets to sort of why we haven't done stuff yet. Because the, I mean, there's a lot of budget competition. That, that's one of the reasons. But I think the biggest reason is the environmental concerns. And, and that's where you really can't avoid walking into a minefield because the environmental uh, safeguards that we've got Everybody agrees we need we need them, but but the question has to be asked: Why does it take twenty or thirty years to get a project approved? By the time you've gone through all of the environmental uh, steps that you have to take, there's countless agencies that are empowered, for example, to use the Coastal Act and the California Environmental Quality Act and other federal and state and local. Uh, laws and regulations to ensure that a project is environmentally safe, that the environmental impact is mitigated or isn't so severe that it, you know, makes the idea of building something uh, just not, not viable. And so what we put into this initiative are streamlining factors for uh, the California Environmental Quality Act and the Coastal Act. And, you know, to how this is definitely how far into the weeds do you want to go? But, you know, in a nutshell, it takes it would take a year or two to either get a yes or a no on a project, whereas currently it takes 10 or 20 or, or 30 years to get projects approved. And it literally takes that long. Ask anybody yeah. who's tried it's, to it's, water it's So, So I feel like there's some uh, tension in the environmental arguments at this point, because on the one hand, if you're an environmentalist, you certainly believe in climate change. And I, I think most environments believe that we need to engage in not just climate change prevention, but climate change adaptation, because we're, we're and I can certainly consider myself environmentalist, we're always saying, hey, it's here, it's not theoretical, it's here. And that suggests adaptation. And what you're talking about is very much of an adaptation strategy. I think it's actually a very pro-environmental strategy in that sense. Um, how do you, how is that um, argument sort of fall within the environmental community? Is there is there any split there, or is it just a relentless focus on individual project opposition? Well, I think that they've constructed a machine that's very uh, 
well-oiled machine that's really good at making sure any project uh, that gets approved has gone through all of the uh, proper channels and has been thoroughly vetted. And, you know, again, it's good in concept to have that sort of a thing, but it can take on a life of its own perhaps, or perhaps it can result in the consequences we're seeing where, where projects just rarely get approved. And if they are approved, they're approved after decades of effort and millions and tens of millions, and sometimes hundreds of millions, and I'm not making that up, uh, in just litigation and permits uh, applications. And the, the timeline is so long nowadays that the regulations change by the time you've gotten your approval. You know, you, if you take 10 years to get everything worked out, within that period of time, several agencies have developed new regulations and you have to start all over again with them. So, you know, that sort of machine that's been created, I think that they're very suspicious of any project. Um, and in our case, I don't think some of them read it. I don't, I don't think they, they read it. They, they read what somebody's interpretation of it was without themselves seeing where the where the countervailing factors are that would prevent it from being as egregious as it's being represented. You know, the early opposition to this, they were saying, well, why aren't you calling for money to be spent on runoff capture and conservation? And why aren't you doing something for disadvantaged communities? And we're doing all of those things. We added as eligible projects, uh, water quality improvement uh, with a priority to fund communities where you know, there's 400 small water systems in communities of low income and no rate base that could possibly fund the upgrades of their water treatment plants. And so they don't have good water out of their water mains if they have any water and they need money. And this pays for that. So the kinds of opposition, some of the opposition we're seeing is uninformed opposition. They haven't really read it. Other, other opposition is based on, you know, we added an appeal, for example, if the Coastal Act denies a project, the California Secretary of Natural Resources can overturn the denial. And they go, well, that's terrible. What if we get a governor who's hostile to the environment and he appoints a Secretary of Natural Resources who will approve a project that's, that's a terrible project? And, and that's, that's the worst case way of looking at it. First of all, California voters would never do that. It's not possible. I mean, it, it's, you know, in some universe, you could imagine that a governor would get elected somehow uh, who would be that irresponsible. It's very unlikely. And even so, there's other agencies that have to approve. Fish and Wildlife gets involved. The federal government gets involved. The Secretary of Natural Resources has to take into account the environmental impact. They can't just willy-nilly overturn a denial. In the real world, the reason that was added is so if a project is denied and the project proponents believe that they have settled all of the concerns, the legitimate concerns by environmentalists, at least they can go to the Secretary of Natural Resources who can say, who can tell everybody to go back to the table and try again. You know, I hate to use desal as an example because we're never going to get more than, you know, 5% in an extraordinary scenario of our 5 million acre feet from desalination. It's just not going to happen. But they could say, go back to the table. What is your concern? Is it the intake? Is it the outfall? You know, send the outfall pipes further out into the current. 
put more of them out there, disperse under greater pressure so that the water is distributed more evenly. You know, there are ways to mitigate these projects and California should be setting an example to the world. So again, we're trying to solve the funding problem so that we have enough money to build these projects in a way that's completely environmentally responsible. Uh, I, I, you know, ultimately the Water Commission approves projects. The Water Commission can deny funding to any project that it chooses under the terms of this initiative. They're chartered to get the 5 million acre feet, but they can choose how to do that. So you have that safeguard in place as well. You know, so even if a coastal commission, you know, denial is overturned, which is unlikely, uh, the Water Commission can simply say, well, we've heard the concerns of the environmentalist community and we don't think that this is something we want to spend money on. So I don't see personally where this goes too far uh, in terms of the environmental uh, concerns. And like you, I, you know, I consider myself an environmentalist. I consider myself a political centrist and I consider myself to be as environmentally concerned as anyone. And let's think about this adaptation to climate change. What happens if we have these lengthy droughts and we have to maintain wetlands? If we don't have a water uh, infrastructure that can guarantee a, a, a reliable supply of water in these extraordinary droughts, we'll lose our wetlands too. The, you know, the water that we uh, store from runoff, that we capture and store underground or in offstream reservoirs, that water can, isn't necessarily gonna be used just for cities and farms. That water can be used to maintain riparian ecosystems and wetlands. So, that's another reason, along with simply coping with climate change, why having more water infrastructure is in the interests of environmentalists. So, so I want to ask you one uh, related topic. It, it may seem a little tangential, but when, when I hear all this, these projects, I'm imagining a lot of labor force to do it. And we're obviously like struggling right now to find employees in a lot of different industries. And maybe that's temporary, maybe it's not. I'm curious how you think about that in the context of the projects this would approve? Like, do, do you think we can find the labor to do it? Um, or do you think there's anything else that the legislature would need to do to help make that happen? You know, that's a really good question. And we went to uh, the trade unions during the research phase writing this. Uh, we went there to uh, ensure that what we uh, composed in this initiative was labor friendly. Uh, it's, it's a fact that any major state-funded infrastructure project is going to be using union labor. And so now you're, you're talking about some pretty good jobs. And so, you know, what kind of jobs are there that we can't fill? Uh, and when you're talking about a, a union job uh, with, uh, you know, doing heavy road construction or doing, uh, you know, rebar and cement work, the kinds of things that you have to do for these uh, water infrastructure projects, you're talking about skilled labor that makes a very, very good wage and, and good benefits. And they, the unions have apprenticeship programs uh, that are really extraordinary. They, they are able to uh, reach out to people that are trying to reintegrate into society uh, after maybe doing time, you know, and they also are able to reach out into minority communities. They're able to reach into the vocational schools and they uh, attract labor 
the people that realize this is just a tremendous opportunity and, and a very good job. So, you know, it may be hard to attract workers and we have to figure out mm -hmm. in a much broader sense why we're why that's a problem and what we need to do about it. Uh, but I think if you're talking about jobs like this, you know, these are the, you know, the cliche almost uh, you hear a lot uh, from candidates, good union jobs. These are good union jobs. And, and the other thing relating to why people don't want to work, you know, people look at the cost of living in California and they look at what some of the uh, lower paying jobs are offering and they, they just give up. If you have, uh, you know, water infrastructure is one of the foundations of lowering the cost of living. If we have water that's affordable because we socialize the cost of the infrastructure, which is what this is essentially doing, then the ratepayers aren't suffering. So you don't have these prohibitive utility bills for your water. You also have more affordable housing because without water supply, you can't increase the supply of housing because home builders have to demonstrate where they're going to get the water hookups before they can build their subdivisions or their apartments or whatever it is they're building in terms of housing. And you also have more affordable food. If we take a million acres of farm uh, land out of production, you know, the only people left standing are going to be giant agribusiness concerns that are growing high value export crops like, uh, you know, so you're going to feel this one way or the other uh, in so many ways in terms of whether or not we're going to raise or lower the cost of living in California with these policies. And if the cost of living was lower, people might be willing to take some of these jobs because they would see, they would see a pathway to living independently and making enough through their work to live on. So, so there, there's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, it really are. But that's, but that's a great place to, to wrap at least this segment. We'd love to have you on later on as you progress more with the initiative. Um, you're in the signature gathering phase. If people want to find out more, if they want to support the campaign, if they want to sign the petition, where can they find out more? Yeah, they can go to morewaternow.com. Pretty straightforward. More water now. Okay. And that's got signature locations on it as, as well as uh, places to make contributions, right? Yes, it does. It has a donate screen. It has a petition screen that uh, has drop down options where it shows you where you can get petitions and how you can help circulate petitions if you would like. There's a lot of information on there. You can read the text of the initiative and a lot of the analysis of the initiative. It's all there. Great. Well, Ed, uh, first of all, thanks for what you're doing. I think this is just a hugely important topic. Um, you're, you're certainly the guest we wanted to have on because I don't think there's anybody more knowledgeable in the state about everything that's going on with water. And I'm, I'm grateful that you are pushing this. We're certainly going to do our job to help you get the word out wherever we can. I hope people will forward this segment, um, send it to influencers, send it to friends and family, just to make sure they vote for this thing when they see it on the ballot, hopefully, if nothing else. Uh, but, but good luck with the initiative and thanks for what you're doing. Thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate it. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at NationStateOfP and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. This is the Nation State of Play podcast, exploring the inside political stories driving public policy in California. Powered by Neptune Ops and presented by IVC Media. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening.
American democracy's good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org.